with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Uh, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, today, our guests, we're continuing this series on adult development and leadership, that intersection. Uh, as always, I have my co-host, Jonathan Reams, with me. Uh, he had edited a book called Maturing Leadership. And John McGuire and Chuck Paulus both have a paper in that edited volume. So John McGuire is principal of the McGuire Consulting Group, an honorary senior fellow at the Center for Creative Leadership and co-founder of CCL's Organizational Leadership Transformation Practice and an Action Inquiry Associate Charter member. He specializes in vertical leadership culture as the core mechanism in his change leadership methodology for the transformation of executives, their teams, and organizations. As an action research practitioner, speaker, and author, John's innovation essentially reforms traditional change methods to be consciously driven towards senior leadership's culture, developing interdependent beliefs and practices. Embedded in leaders' strategic mindsets and implemented through organizational systems, structures, and processes, the MCG transformation methodology improves the performance of collective leadership and organizational operations simultaneously. Since 2006, his publications comprise the book Transforming Your Leadership Culture, professional journal articles from Integral Review and Leadership Quarterly to Forbes.com and HBR, multiple handbook chapters from Sage to Harvard Business School to CCL, 
op-ed columns in the Washington Post and other popular press, and an action research series of CCL vertical white papers. John has assisted organizations across market sectors in transformation toward interdependent leadership cultures and previously practiced vertical transformation through senior business management positions across industries. He holds a master's degree from Harvard and Brandeis Universities. Our other guest, Chuck Paulus, is a senior fellow at the Center for Creative Leadership, responsible for research, innovation, and product development. He is a co-founder of CCL Labs, a community-based innovation laboratory with products including Visual Explorer, Leadership Essentials, Transformations, and the Early Leadership Toolkit. He has researched, partnered, and published widely on the topic of interdependent leadership, leadership culture, and vertical development. Paulus is a contributor to the CCL Handbook of Leadership Development and the CCL Handbook of Coaching. He holds a PhD in social psychology from Boston College. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us today. We we are so thankful to have you here. And Jonathan, I know that you want to jump in with some questions. I know that you're chomping at the bit. You have a list that you want to get to. But before we begin, Chuck and John, is there anything else people need to know about the two of you? Well, there's a lot that they should know about John and I. We've been friends for about 20 plus years, as well as colleagues, and we go on adventures together. We research together. We work with clients together. We write together. We have a good bond. Yes, we we have a lot of interests in common. We both love the outdoors, and I, th- I think the thing that uh, strikes me most is that we have both a kind of commitment in the world of art and a commitment in the world of science. And we're very interested in, in the integration of individuals and collectives and societies and a kind of balance between those uh, basic human qualities. So one of the things that I thought is interesting about you guys' work is that, to me, there's this bridge between CCL and the work they do, and there's been some podcast conversations around that, and Bill Torbert and the, the wonderful grand world that he has opened up for so many of us. And could you guys start by saying a little bit about how you guys are bridging those worlds or how they fit together? Yeah, I could comment on that. First of all, I want to say that CCL has just celebrated its 50-year anniversary in doing leadership development. And from the very get-go, they were doing transformative work, period, which I think is just amazing. And they didn't frame it back then as something called vertical. But, you know, vertical has been in the air for a long time. Uh, Eric Erickson, for example, was one of the early entrants in all that. It's really part of the, the bloodline at CCL. And then we met Bill Torbert. Oh, uh, I, you know, I met him in graduate school at Boston College so over 30 years ago. And uh, I met Bob Keegan even sooner than that. So I've had my toe in this water for a long time. And when I came to CCL... I found out that, hey, when I'd go into people's offices, that shut the door and pull out Bob Keegan's work and they'd say, hey, have you met Bob Keegan? What's he like? You know, and so there was this whole underground at CCL of vertical. And then I do remember John coming into the organization and saying something like, uh, you know, how come the organization's not onto this? And I said, hey, John, we're here. Let's do it. And oh, around that same time, 20 years ago, we were in dialogue with Bill Torberts as well as Suzanne Cook-Greuter and a number of others. So it's always been there. And I'll tell you, and this gets into the topic of what we're talking about, the vertical stuff seemed hard to approach directly. And maybe that's 
one of the reasons it was sort of in the water, but you know, not in the air, so to speak, is because people had misconceptions about it. It's a complicated topic. People overcomplicate it. And so we were sort of putting it aside. And so Bill Torbert really obviously helped us approach it head on. He, you know, he's, he gave us the kind of courage to be academic and intellectual and professional about our work. And so that's the genesis of it. I noticed you uh, mentioned that people would close the door. So I get the feeling that it was a little bit underground and maybe not safe. So was there active resistance to the ideas or was it just not considered credible? What, what was your take, John, when you came in? Well, I was so relieved to find Chuck because I found a certain, a, a very certain resistance to anything that uh, had to do with collectives. Although there was a gentleman who had preceded me who had done some work with teams and it was acceptable at that level. But to move beyond the individual into the, the culture was not, not invited right at first. Uh, we had to sort of make room for that and make way for that. And I think it was Torbert's book in the 80s of Managing the Corporate Dream in which he first suggested that there was both individual and collective possible in the, in the world of research and development and action research. And, and in fact, that the substance of action inquiry itself. Uh, was involved in that. And that changed my life when I read that book, uh, because I had sort of grown up in that Harvard's, that integrated school out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where all these people came together that were studying adult development and vertical work from the points of view of identity to cognition, to morality, even to stages of faith. So culture was embedded in the idea of, uh, for me from the beginning. So one of the things that I think is quite interesting in your chapter is that you have a focus on polarities. So why using polarities as a lens to deal with vertical? Yeah, so the polarity that got us started on all this is the polarity of individual and collective, or individual and relational is sometimes the language used. And when we got to CCL, CCL was very much an individual heroic leadership kind of environment. Mm. It was perhaps the epitome in Western civilization of heroic leadership, right? Where you bring <laughs> important individuals, you know, generals from the military, corporate leaders. I mean, it was very heady stuff. And they were all mostly men at first, the elite leaders of their field. And the idea was that you really focus on each of those individuals and develop them as much as you can offsite away from their context, even. Then you put them back in their pond and see what happens. And of course, one thing that happened when they went back to their pond is the pond changed them back to whatever they used to be. Not in every case, there's a lot of transformational work that happened, but very much of an individual focus really was sort of Keegan in our heads, I think, at least it was for me. And we started writing about, uh, actually, we wrote a paper, some of you out there might have read called uh, Making Common Sense, um, Leadership as Meaning Making in a Community of Practice. Hmm. Introduced the idea that uh, meaning making was a collective endeavor in which, sure, individual leaders participated, but the important thing, or equally important thing, was that there's a collective that's responding, and that idea later became our idea about leadership culture. And, you know, that was really the thing that was pushed back against the hardest, because the cultural paradigm of the heroic leader was so embedded that people just didn't want to hear the other side of it. And we realized that there was the tension in this. Well, for one thing, because we got smacked over the head with it, <laughs> people said, collective, community. So you, you don't think individuals are important, do you? And we're like, oh, wait, no, that's not the case at all. Like, excuse us. 
but to be fair, we had kind of punched so hard in the other direction that people did get the actually real impression that we were disparaging the individual leader somewhat. And I think we had to make a course correction. And it was a kind of maturing, honestly, on our part to say, yeah, it is both. And we just have to be adept at the both and part of that. And I think we did become adept at both individual and collective. And we saw it as a kind of attention. It wasn't just, you know, you had both and that was it. It was a kind of attention. And then we started looking around and there was lots of other tensions in the field. So we explored those. And that was really the genesis of the chapter, actually, is that we said, hey, we got one polarity right. Let's let's unpack the others and see what happens. And I think it was good. So when we talk about polarities, are we going straight to the work of Barry Johnson here? Or is there some other foundational source that you all would draw from for listeners? I would just say it's not important to this Barry Johnson's work. We know Barry. I actually had the pleasure of teaching vertical development to Barry Johnson with some colleagues. So that was incredible fun. And actually, after that was over, I said to Barry, you know, Barry, what'd you think of all that? You know, how are you processing that? And Barry, without actually speaking, was pretty cool. He walked up to a flip chart and put seven dots on a flip chart in a circle, right, for the seven stages, and then started drawing loops around them all, right? I wish I would have saved that flip chart. <laughs> an artifact from our field. But of course, what he was saying is that the stages are a multarity in his later language. The stages themselves are part of a multarity and that they're all sort of functioning in tension with one another. But in the paper, we actually draw on some of the thinking of, you know, Chinese philosophy, the yin-yang kind of complementary dualities idea. So it, in, a, in a sense, it doesn't matter. It's, it's really this underlying yin-yang idea of balance of things that seem very different, but they're in fact uh, a unity. And that's what we want to emphasize. So Chuck, I would, I would just say in terms of, of the question about you know polarities, it was our observation for a very long time that organizations that are interested in transformation are begging for some kind of experience and capability that's post-conventional to be able to, to go beyond either or thinking, to move into some kind of critical thinking, to, to move into both and thinking, almost always in our experience was required because the strategies themselves that they had constructed were basically post-conventional and interdependent and required that, that kind of leadership capability. So therefore, this interest in polarities was a requirement at, at the basic level for individuals and in their collective to move beyond their own uh, limits and restrictions. I think you said something quite interesting there, John. I can imagine many organizations draw up or conceive of strategy in a more post-conventional way. But when they turn around to act, they somehow that falls out the window or falls off the scaffolding. And you talked in the chapter about an imbalance in how vertical leadership development is expressed and experienced. And I wonder if this is touch on they express the strategy in a way that's very empowering and post-conventional, but the experience of what people know how to do with it seems to lack something. So is this the tension that you're speaking to? Yes, I, I believe it absolutely is. In our vertical leadership culture practice, around the focus of individual and collective, it was, in fact, that the breakthrough was to help people understand their levels of readiness. And one of the reasons that we accelerated the success factors 
from only one out of four organizations actually achieve any significant change that they set out. And we significantly improved that simply by helping executive teams understand, no, you're not ready for that strategy. You're going to fail. Don't give another consulting company 25 million. And so we actually helped them come to a divide in which they understood, oh, we're not ready. We need to get, we need to go get ready or we are ready. We're going to advance now into using this methodology. And John, what were some indicators that a company wasn't ready or that the team wasn't ready? Well, Chuck, I would like for you to talk a little bit about, you know, our tools and our practices and the way that we did that, because our our tools were all designed around kind of qualitative data that was generated by the clients themselves, rather than being consultants coming in and measuring them and telling them what was wrong. We experientially helped them understand and come to the realization of, oh, this is conventional, you know, conformance thinking, and this is post-conventional sort of interdependent thinking and acting and influencing. You guys talk in the book about scaffolding or spotlighting vertical development. And so what I think you're talking about, John, is that you built a lot of scaffolding so people could experience something without having to get geeky about the theory. So Chuck, do you want to describe some of those tools for that? Yeah, that's a good point, Jonathan. Uh, When we go into a room and work with a senior team, we would never, or rarely, I suppose, talk about vertical development, except in a sort of offhanded way. Um, Because, you know, again, it scares people. It's too intellectual. It's too academic. It's a little too unbalanced, right? And so what we did is we built some friendly, inviting tools to get dialogue going with teams. Then that is a part of action inquiry, what Bill Torbert has really nicely defined as action inquiry, which is, by the way, why we really love working with Bill because he's one of the people in the field that really have stressed this idea of action inquiry, which is being mindful in the moment to possibilities and then acting on them and reflecting on them. And that was the spirit we brought to senior teams. Previous to that, CCL really on, and this is um, this is what actually happened: that uh, CCL teams would go in and and teach people. You know, they'd stand up in front of the room, much like they would in a classroom and treat it like a classroom. And, you know, hey, they're getting paid as the experts. And they'd spend, you know, half the day on the podium saying, you know, this is a result of your tests and this is what you should do. And uh, this is how you are. This is how you are compared to other organizations. Any questions, goodbye. And that's what we understand as an expert action logic. And so we were trying to uh, nudge the teams toward action inquiry through, say, okay, a tool like we fondly called it the snowman and surprisingly never got any resistance on gender on a gender basis, but I think that would be different these days. But somebody called it a snowman. It's just a sort of a loose Venn diagram with three circles stacked, hence the snowman. And uh, the bottom circle was dependent, the middle one was independent, and the top one was interdependent. And those words, the language was fortuitous, uh, as language often can be, and people kind of immediately grasp that. That's a pretty powerful meme and would explain about a bit about what those cultures looked like and then would invite people up to a flip chart to put a line uh, across the snowman over, well, where do you think you are now? And people would do that. And okay, where do you need to be to achieve the strategy that you've told us about? And that invariably put it up towards the interdependent level. And in a way, it was kind of a trick because it's hard for people sort of not to put the lines in those places, I believe. 
but I think that's just because it's so damn obvious that people were being in a dependent and independent kind of frame. And it was a relief for them to hear that, oh yeah, there's a name for that. And there's a way out. And actually it's a way up. If you know, you're unpacking the vertical language, I'd like to say the vertical just refers to growing up. And so it's inviting people in the room to grow up a bit. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce that CCL's always had and hadn't been able to articulate it, but it's hooking people's individual developmental needs into the collective developmental needs. And as we would work with people and introduce them to sort of individual epiphanies and collective epiphanies, the magic really would happen when those two would link up and people would say, hey, I'm not just here to make my company richer. I'm here because I can grow up a little bit. I could become a more effective, complex thinker. And that's exciting to me. Well, and, and one reason I just very much appreciate the work of CCL is that you have just some incredible scholars and thought leaders, and they're working with the client day in, day out. And there's that both and there that is such a powerful combination because sitting in an ivory tower, so to speak, and just coming up with a theory is wonderful. But how does that actually interface with with people and with people doing the work. So I just think it's such a powerful combination. Yeah. So you've talked about the the polarities between individual and collective. And I mentioned this spotlight and scaffolding, but you have a table here with a whole list of these. This is clearly a lens that you have found useful as a way of helping people make distinctions or make sense of their experience in a way that's different than the sage on the stage expert mode downloading to them. Could you highlight, you know, three or four other of these polarities that you found really useful? So, John, let me comment on that. And I'd like to toss it over to you to talk about stages and states. But I want to make it clear that in the chapter, uh, we perceive the main audience really as practitioners in the field or theorists in the field. Uh, because it was our own colleagues that seemed to be uh, balancing the dualities and emphasizing one end of them as compared to the other. And then that translated into the classroom. So the most common way was that our our faculty, brilliant people, well-meaning, doing their work, absolutely. But they would fall back into this kind of sage on the stage point of view and become experts in vertical. And it became very academic, very quantitative, very distorted. You know, there's seven stages and it's the famous kind of stairway to heaven kind of metaphor. And people are crushed, you know, if they perceive somehow they're on lower on the stairway than other people. And that is such a a sad thing in this context of human growth. And that really bothered us. So really, we were speaking to our colleagues in the field, which, you know, at one end of the spectrum, because of our way of thinking, our colleagues in the field are also the participants, right? Everybody's in the same boat. And mm-hmm. our aspiration is actually what we sometimes call democratizing this work. Hey, I, I spend a few hours showing you what I know and what we can do. I introduce you to the tools and like, hey, the tools are designed to be pretty straightforward and you you too can do this in your own environment. So even the boundary between you know colleagues and participants got blurred. John, I I think you could describe one or two of the other polarities. Yeah, that's very important, Chuck. So one of the polarities that was so important to us was this idea of stages and states. 
uh, most of the individual work that's done is really focused on stages. And in some ways, Wilbur is one of the few people who uh, like to talk about states as well. And so our, our insight was that when we'd go into a very dynamic environment and work with executives and, and their teams and you know the top 100 people, et cetera, we had an active head and gut level uh, kind of appreciation for what we were finding and, and what the center of gravity was uh, within the snowman. You know, are they a dependent conformer? Are they independent achiever? Are they how much collaborator are they? And how much of that is required to sort of move towards the strategy? So we experimented with this idea of or a hypothesis of, well, what if we could take a, a team of people either in the lab or on the line, actively in the in the work, uh, and create a state in which their belief got boosted from, say, uh, achiever to collaborator, where a great deal of interdependence was required. Could we hold them in that state for a while and help them practice a different kind of belief and practices associated with that, and then let it go and then come back and do it again? Could mm. we practice this idea of uh, elevating states in such a way that would help them with what we called headroom? Could we help them get bigger minds collectively? Could they practice that and and come to a, an actual experience in which, uh, as if they were all behaving in a different stage together, and could that stick? Would that work over time? Yeah, I have this image when you describe that also of the polarities work. And I can imagine that if you see that they're trying to move between stages, that this can be states they experience in transition. And you could use the polarities to help them understand how they're vacillating between or inhabiting both of those spaces. Is that a little how it worked? Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly how it worked. We were hypothesizing and attempting to do developmental work in the, in the individual and in the collective simultaneously over time. So you need to understand that we worked with these, with these teams and these organizations for two, three, four, five years. We found that, that it worked. And, and back to the previous idea of readiness, those that weren't ready, it was clear that you're not going to, you've got a collaborative strategy and, and absolutely conformer culture. Yeah. You're probably not going to get there. But if you have enough of a mix that's close enough, we think we can work with this. And what we found was that there's a great willingness to fake it till you make it for, for a lot of people who don't quite understand what's happening, but are, are willing to go along. And, and we saw development within the collective over and over and over again. So I'm going to go back to kind of a definitional question. <laughs> so when we're talking individual and collective, is it almost as if we're simultaneously engaging in leader and leadership development as day would define it? We're doing a both and there? Yes, for sure. Absolutely, Absolutely yes. And David Day spent uh, his sabbatical at CCL when we were working on those distinctions. And so he helped us define that. And uh, it's interesting if you look at the evolution of the, I think there were three versions, editions of the CCL handbook for leadership development. If you look in the introductions to those, you can trace the development of the idea of leadership and with leadership increasingly being this sort of superordinate idea that, you know, leadership is a process of meaning making, et cetera, whereas a leader is a participant in that process. Mm. 
Another one of the tools that you guys talk about and that I've had practice with is the uh, cards, the transformation card decks. And I and for I listeners, he has the cards in his hands right now. He he's holding them up. He's a card carrying member of of this conversation right now. That's right. <laughs> because Chuck generously shipped some of these to me when we were they were coming out. And what I noticed is it gave people visual ways and metaphors to talk about the different states they would experience, either in their past or in the present, diversity or aspirations in the future, without having to get into analyzing what level they were performing on, but having a felt sense of, well, we tend to act like this, or I see I was there, and maybe I matured a little here, but they're not putting those in a kind of definitional framework. So can you say more about the cards and how that has helped people and organizations or teams go through this journey of maturing or growing up? Yeah, the cards were exciting to develop. They were partly inspired by our experience with Visual Explorer, which used imagery to have dialogue. And that points to yet another one of the polarities is the left brain and right brain polarity. And we realized that a lot of the pedagogy of vertical was, again, it was very left brain, very analytical, very verbal. You know, it's almost like you have to be hyper verbal to be a developed human being. And probably there's a correlation. And yet it's almost like a game that was played in order, you know, you had to be able to articulate these fine points in order to get it. And that just seems so counterproductive. And so um, we really loved experimenting with more visual kinds of things. The cards you held up, Jonathan, the transformation card deck. We had a wonderful artist that we worked with that kind of captured, I actually feel it's almost like a little living community of animated beings on the cards that were having experiences. And it was all very visual. And obviously that's attractive to people. You know, it bridges a lot of domains too, you know, because we aspired to do more of this with younger people, high school students, or maybe even younger People with English is not their first language as a second or third language, where again, language would get in the way. We've actually had them translated into different languages. So that's helped enormously. Just want to tell the anecdote that we developed these cards in collaboration with Bill Torbert. The initial spark I could remember, like almost the moment I had the spark, I'm reading one of Bill's papers and buried way down deep in the middle of it in the data analysis section. He said, Oh, it was almost an offhand observation. By the way, when we have people uh, self-estimate their stage of development in a kind of organized fashion that they're actually about 90% aligned with the formal, very expensive, very difficult sentence completion test. And I just about fell out of my chair. Like, okay, why are we doing the expensive prohibitive sentence completion test that turns most people off actually? And why aren't we working more with the self-estimate? Because we said, always that there is social desirability and people did not have sufficient insight in order to self-assess, which is pretty insulting to human beings, really, when you think about it, that they can't be led into a process in which they see their own cognition somehow. And so the cards were developed to help them see their own cognition and to play with it. Um, I, I'm sure there's a polarity in there someplace around sort of play and serious and we actually had a name for it in the book David Horth and I wrote called Serious Play. Actually, Ken, Ken Gergen came up with that phrase first. But it's this idea that, uh, hey, we're deadly serious about this. There's nothing more important. And we're playful. 
uh, which was often missing. Well, and and John had mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, before we even got to this topic, very far far from it, but just you mentioning, John, the the passion that both of you have for art. So that that lens through which we can help people make sense of some of these concepts and get into some of these conversations, again, I just think it's wonderful. It's I mean, it's another avenue, right? That reminds me that our dear colleague, Elaine Herdman Barker at Global Leadership Associates, who's one of the pioneers of this, helped us develop the card deck and et cetera, uh, major contributor to the field. I w- went through a training with her. And when she introduces the stages, she doesn't use any words on slides. Obviously, she uses a lot of words when she speaks. But um, in every example where she's presenting something about the stage of development, unpacking it, it's an image. It's a, a work of art. She's collected. And they're very provocative. They're very detailed. They're very appropriate to the context. But she has people engage with those and uh, interact with them rather than her just present on it. And it's just amazing how people are just, you can almost hear them being you know, drawn into this universe of right brain ideation. Again, as opposed to, okay, here's five bullet points on the strategist stage, which is, again. (laughs) And I will now lecture you on those in this dark room. (laughs) You got it. John, you wanted to jump in. 149 slides and you're going to see every one of them. We got four hours to fill. Let's do this, you know. So if I could just say what I think is really essential about Chuck and David's work with their cards, and it's it's theoretical, but it's also the most practical tool I have ever been the benefit of using. And that is the whole idea of transformation for individuals and collectives is the subject and object relationship. We all are aware of that. And you have to be able to take the subject and hold it as object. You've got to be able to see yourself, see it. You've got to be able to have a relationship in order to move to the next uh, level and the next stage. And what happens and the the brilliance of the cards that Chuck has created is that the cards themselves are the object. And you can walk into a room of enemies of the most conflictual team, executive team members, and through the cards, they can almost immediately have a conversation through the cards because it's not about themselves. It's about this projective identification. It's about this objectification. It's about, and it always works. Wow. I can vouch for that. Yeah. Yep. So a little anecdote, my dear colleague, Stedman Harrison, was prepared to use the cards with a group that he was told was not entirely friendly to this event that was going on. And they, they were coming in with a chip on their shoulders. And so what Stedman did is he spread the transformation cards out on a, big table in in the room. And as people came in, they saw all these cards and he hung back and instead of sort of greeting them, just let them sort of self-organize. And they started looking at the cards on the table and they were like, well, what are these? And it's like, they start picking them up. Well, this is interesting. And it's like, I think these are supposed to be about us. And like, well, here's one about me. And I think this is, this one's about us, you know, and they, they, Pretty soon, that you know, a facilitated exercise in vertical development just broke out spontaneously with a hostile audience. <laughs> wow, that's great. So the last, almost like a meta question that that I have is: you talk about the uh, imbalance, as I mentioned before, and how vertical leadership is expressed and experienced, but 
the term vertical? I mean, there's been critiques of it from various places. What do you see as the advantages and disadvantages or limitations of that kind of conception? What what it evokes in people and what it doesn't evoke? So I think that it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because I think it actually came from Suzanne Cook-Greuter's writings, but she didn't really emphasize it. You know, we didn't, and I asked my colleagues about this, like, we're always using the term vertical. And I swear a decade ago, we were not using the term vertical. And what happened? And I think what happened was Nick Petrie, our colleague, picked it up from Suzanne, integrated a whole bunch of stuff and declared that, okay, the field is defined as vertical versus horizontal. Mm. And then he stepped back to see what would happen. And people liked it. I I mean, a lot of people liked it. A critical mass of people liked it. There was something, you you know, there's something, frankly, sort of linear and left brain about it. It's Cartesian coordinates, right? It evokes that. And that's the blessing that people picked it up as language. It seemed friendly, like constructive developmental theory does not seem friendly. Sorry, (laughs) folks. Whereas vertical versus horizontal it appeals to executives somehow because they sense vertical. Hey, that's probably going to be about me rising up. And actually, it's not completely wrong either. So, so that's the blessing. The curse is that you know it is Cartesian, and it does imply a, a real con- a sharp contrast. And it, the first thing it often evokes in people is hierarchy. And so we've had trouble using it in a lot of contexts. It's good, but it's flawed. Uh, we struggle on. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, Keith Eigel had done, because Keith Eigel and Carl Kuhner have adopted Vertical. And and Keith will say, look, you know, a group of executives in a room gets it fairly quickly. And to your point, Chuck, you know, if I start talking about CDT, <laughs> constructive developmental theory, we're, we're, we're losing them quickly. And I was listening to a podcast between Bob Keegan and, and Keith Eigel, and Keegan said, well, for me, it sounds like shrimp scampi, vertical development, right? He, he just felt like it was redundant in a way. And so it's it's an interesting... Now, the, the only thing I've ever seen Keegan write, and it was in a book, I believe, by Mesero, a chapter in a book by Mesero. And he said that, you know, he called it transformational development or transformational learning and informational learning were kind of how the, the terminologies he was using to to distinguish. I, I brought it up because I wrestle with this a lot too, because I agree that the simplicity of it is accessible and at the same time it's reductionistic. And the reality is so much more dynamic and messy and interdependent, but that is more systemic understanding, which we know is not so common. And so, you know, we deal with what we can. I've been using the term vertical for decades, never seemed that important. And as Chuck mentioned, since he and I were working together, we used the term, it never stuck, you know, people didn't use it. I believe what we're experiencing here is the phenomenon of invention in which there's always a web of people beyond the individual that sort of takes credit for it. And I see it as, a, as nothing more than a stair step and it's, it's not the right one yet, it's better than CDT, but it's good enough for now. And just to comment, I have never had anything but a good experience with a group of people, including a large group of people. When you introduce the idea of vertical or any kind of development, 
transformational work in terms of their children. You begin with their children. Is a hierarchy bad? Is there a difference between learning how to tie their shoes and learning how to drive a car? Aren't these sort of natural? And secondly, do, do you believe that your learning and growth and development and transformation is over now that you're 33 or 56? No one believes that. So there's great receptivity to it, depending on how it's framed. Well, and I just love the intentionality behind, look, we know that there's limitations. We're experimenting, we're exploring, we're learning, and we're using it out in the field, which I think is so incredibly important to see how it really works when working with practitioners, because that's ultimately what we're trying to do is help, help them be more successful in these very challenging, gnarly roles that leaders and teams find themselves in. Yeah, I, I found the same thing that is if you can help people name their experience in a way that's meaningful for them, then they don't care what kind of model it's associated with. It, it it's helpful for them. I feel the same way about the term leadership, you all. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the right term. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't capture words like teaming are going through my mind. But, but there's it's you know, there's that book by I think it's Hurwitz, you know, leadership is half the half the conversation or something to that effect. And it's a book about followership. But there's, I don't know, I feel like in some ways our, our language limits us. If I could just share a reflection. I moved into corporate America in the 80s and 90s and spent a couple of decades there before I moved into this field. And I recall very clearly how the struggle in those years was to come to language like human system versus technical system. Mm. And how there was huge pushback about even the idea of language of human system. And is that the right language? And what do you call this? Because in those years, quite frankly, everything was about technical system. Everything was a technical problem. And just introducing that level of balance into the, the equation of our work and challenges. So... I'm appreciating this part of the conversation very much and anything to advance the cause because the world needs horizontal and vertical, whatever the right word. (laughs) Transformation, development. (laughs) So the word transformation is interesting. So I remember before and after John in which the word transformation was not acceptable at CCL. Yes. When we were developing our connected leadership practice and we talked about transforming organizations, the pushback we got was, no, our clients don't want to transform. That's too threatening. They want to improve. They want to change. They want to grow. Transformation, -uh. they will will not let us in the door if we talk about transformation. You cannot use that. And then it was obviously just a few short years until like everybody wanted transformation. It was probably (laughs) a great recession, I think precipitated a lot. And I'll, I'll just add to that by saying there, this is all fascinating. I, I think there's a much larger phenomenon here of, let's call it the evolution of human consciousness. Pretty heady idea. But I do think that if you sit way back, maybe you need to be on the moon to see this, but there are overall trends in the human race and how we think about things. And ideas get added into the mix, and then they become acceptable. So I think transformation is one of those words. I don't think when I was growing up, you know, I was in Boy Scouts and they didn't talk about leadership. <laughs> I was at CCL and they didn't talk about transformation. 
even though the words get misused, there's just something in the air that says, you know, there's something called leadership I can aspire to. There's something called transformation that's possible. And I think that's, you know, that's growth in human consciousness at some level. The language evolves, the ideas evolve, and maybe there's some hope in that. To just take that one step further, once people did begin to uh, accept the idea of transformation, we were very specific and deliberate about defining organizational transformation specifically around the snowman. And, And we meant when an organization or at least a significant part of the organization or the, its executive team is able to demonstrate that it has moved from one stage to the next in terms of strategic implementation and in, in terms of their, their actual performance, that's transformation. So we were able to give it a sort of definitional space in, in a way that I think relieved a lot of people who are insistent on measurement. And I think that's a good way to kind of uh, sum up at least my intentions. And I struggled with, you know, what to title the book. And the the notion of maturing became a safe kind of bridge rather than calling it constructive developmental. I'm getting the thumbs up from John here. So that's good. (laughs) I'll give you a thumbs up Uh, as well, Jonathan. (laughs) But I think what we've been just discussing now is the same for me. When I started out, it was about consciousness development was my entrance and finding people talking about that in different ways, making distinctions, being able to map things out. But at least my experience over 25 years of that now has been that we get more mature about our own ideas. We're in love with the first ideas we encounter because they help us so much and we spread the gospel. And little by little, we realize not everybody's seeing the light the way we're seeing it. And so we get a little more mature in relation to how we convey this. And I think constructive developmental theory, adult development, whatever, vertical, whatever we want to call it, is going through that process of maturation as a field of practitioners, of theoreticians. So the way you describe the journey at CCL in the way words were or weren't used is a really good example of that, I think. Yes, it was the great man, quote unquote, right? In the beginning, Chuck, I think you mentioned that. It was all about the leader. And as you mentioned, it was men in the room. And I think, Jonathan, to your point, This conversation has been an interesting little fast forward also to see where the thinking is today. What, 40 years later, 50 years later as an organization? But Chuck, how many years had you been involved? And John, how many years had you been involved? 30 years for me. Okay. Almost 25. But I think, Jonathan, it's that awareness that maybe we haven't landed there yet and we understand the strengths and the limitations of the language we are using and we're we're searching, we're learning, we're growing ourselves. and. I forget John or Chuck who said it, but that consciousness is being elevated. It's a process. Is that accurate? Did I describe that accurately? I think yeah. I think so. It was Chuck who said it. And I, I also believe that's why we're in the game. Yes. That, that's the game. And yeah. it's worthwhile. Yes. Yes. The world needs it. We're just nodes on the map. Mm. Well, and I think to, to that sentiment, this is the whole idea of leadership as well. There's something inherent in the, at least, 
heartfelt sense of what leadership in action looks like that has something to do with maturing, being able to handle situations in better ways. Mm. Maturing is the perfect title and maybe the next moniker. Well, gentlemen, as we close down these conversations, we always ask what our guests, what's caught their eye in recent times. It could have something to do with what we've just discussed. It could have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. It's something you've been streaming, listening to, reading, something that's, it could be a work of art, but something that's caught your attention in recent times. Okay. What caught my attention? I'm reading a book that I'm surprised that it really caught my attention and I'm so into it. Bernoulli's Fallacy. Hmm. Okay. And it's about how um, the statistics we use in science is based on a fallacy. And it's, it's not really an exaggeration to say that the frequency models we all used in social sciences, but it's also used in like pharmacy, it's used in physics. They're based on a fundamental misunderstanding of probability and that there's a, another whole line of thinking that is called, well, it's more of a probability understanding. It's actually based in what's called Bayes' theorem, getting a little technical. And there's these two schools of thought. And they do converge at one point, and they do give the appearance of absolute rigor and repeatability, but they're wrong. (laughs) And that's what's led to the reproducibility crisis in science, which is a real big, giant, enormous crisis, if any of you have not heard of it. It's really astounding that People are going back to and looking at studies, especially social sciences, but again, and, and uh, pharm- pharmacology has experienced this. The experiments again, and they don't pan out because the statistics are wrong. Okay, I will put that in the show notes for sure. John? A very old friend gave me a book for my birthday recently, very recently. The title of the book is How Invention Begins by John H. Leanhart, L-I-E-N-H-A-R-D, and He is a mechanical engineer who's fascinated with the process and phenomenon of inventions, and he dispels the myth of the individual inventor. And what has caught my attention is he's not trying to demythologize. He appreciates the myth, the mythology, but his insights uh, read such as how inventions both shape and are shaped by culture, and that the idea of an individual single canonical inventor is illusory because all inventions are the sum of many contributors. And I think in some ways that parallels our last conversation about how these are these are movements and whether we know them or not, we're part of a process that's moving forward. And I think that's why the idea of polarities and the individual and the collective and all the other polarities we're talking about is so powerful because it's all based on a both-and reality that we live in. Yeah, the both and reality. Maybe that's what we call this episode, Jonathan. The both and reality. That sounds like a good move. Okay, sir. Any final comments that you have, Jonathan? Before you want to wrap that up in a bow real quick for us? (laughs) Really? Uh, No, I really appreciate the opportunity to have these kind of conversations. For me, editing the volume was, uh, you know, these kind of conversations multiplied and the opportunity to have all these nuances and facets all gone into deeply to help people understand that it's more than just some simple ladder with a few labels. Yeah. Um, so I think this has contributed a lot to that. Really glad to have you guys here. 
of the 150 roughly episodes that we've engaged in, my favorites are when I'm speaking with individuals who are writing at the highest levels and engaging in the practice at high levels as well. And there's that both and, John, to your point, that exists where there's theory and it's good, good sound theory. And we're now testing it and bumping up against practitioners. And, and are we truly making a difference? The first episode of this of this podcast was uh, Dave Rush, and, and we called that I Have a Fear. Because in the episode, he said, you know, I have a fear that we aren't really making a difference. <laughs> are we doing this right? Mm-hmm. And and so I, I think it's at that nexus where so much opportunity exists. A good sound theory and, and practice and working with people who are doing both and working to elevate our game and better understand the phenomenon. Love it. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. With the exception of one fishing trip, this is the most fun I've had all year. (laughs) (laughs) That's high praise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Take care, gentlemen. Be well. Bye-bye. John, you had a heart attack on that fishing trip. (laughs) (laughs) That too. (laughs) Okay, Jonathan. As always, we're doing a little reflection after the episode. You've had an opportunity to listen back. And this is another title that I just love, The Both and Reality. Talk about that. That came, I think, because a lot of the focus in this chapter and the way they approached the conversation was talking about polarity and the movement beyond either or, into this notion of both and, and understanding that as we mature, we often see things that appear to be polar opposites are actually just two sides of a similar coin. Yes. And as we mature and as we develop, we begin to see these polarities as ends of a spectrum almost versus either or choices in our mind, right? Exactly. So what else did you observe in the conversation? What stands out for you? There were a a number of things. It was such a rich conversation. The hearing some of the inside story about how their journey in the Center for Creative Leadership to try and bring these ideas in, notions of moving from the hero leader to transformational and getting pushback and resistance on this, let alone notions of development, just hearing that this struggle goes on in almost any context and even places we may think of as very progressive didn't always start out that way. I think it was important the way Chuck and John talked about the imbalance among practitioners on how they're using terms like vertical. It's really a mixed blessing. It's user-friendly, but it's too linear and it evokes notions of hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, polarity as a lens for understanding cultural development. I think this was so fascinating to be able to, in that both and ways, just step back and understand how does culture evolve and develop? Because that's been a lot of their focus in this chapter is not just individual, but how do organizations and organizational cultures evolve? that naming things is helpful for clients and independent of the model. So they talked about the snowman model, you know, the dependent, 
independent, interdependent, real simple, most anybody can get it. And just making simple distinctions like that can be helpful. And if it's overdone, it can become too simplistic. So there's this balance with these things. The fact that clients, when they recognize their own maturity through some simple tools, allows them to kind of reflect on themselves, kind of position themselves in a larger journey, and that they've got really cool tools for doing this. I've used these transformation card decks, and it really is amazing how the visual image can allow people to see kind of like in a mirror and see themselves and then recognize something about their experience. And that this kind of process helps hold clients in an elevated state and can scaffold their performance. And finally, that they're really talking about how do we democratize this work? How do we make it an everyone culture? Mm. Well, I think something that you just said that stood out for me is that this is maybe the first conversation where we've gotten into some tools. So how do we actually do this work? And you know that that's an area of passion of mine. How do we help people kind of move along that path and build some habits of mind? And what are the tools that can help us get there? So I think that's wonderful. Jonathan, I look forward to next week. I will see you then for another awesome conversation. As always, thanks for being with us. See you then, Scott. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.